0: Thanks for taking the time to listen to Resilient History, a new podcast that aims to explore forgotten, ignored, and partially told history. I'm your host, Gordon Black. In each episode, I'll speak to authors, academics, activists, and others who can provide a more rounded and more complete sense of the past. This podcast is for those curious about history. I'm a high school history teacher and believe it's important that everyone has a broader understanding of events from the past that have helped shape today. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe. In high school classes about U.S. history, students learn how former Confederate states and within them, cities and other public bodies created laws to effectively deny African Americans the same legal rights as white people. It was segregation by the back door. And for more than 90 years, various forms of what became known as Jim Crow laws existed across the American South. But starting after World War II, civil rights activists began to legally challenge segregationist laws, and not only in the South. Among them, the action brought by Oliver Brown against the school board in Topeka, Kansas. That famous case resulted in the landmark decision by the U.S. Supreme Court declaring that separate but equal schooling based on race was unconstitutional. Fifty years after that 1954 court decision upended segregated schools across the United States, law professor Gabriel Jack Chin, with colleagues at the University of Arizona, sought to investigate eight southern states to see what laws were still in place that referenced racially segregated schools. The resulting article, Still on the Books, Jim Crow and Segregation Laws 50 Years After Brown v. Board of Education, appeared in the Michigan State Law Review. Professor Chin is now the Edward L. Barrett, Jr. Chair of Law, a Martin Luther King, Jr. Professor of Law and Director of Clinical Legal Education at the University of California Davis Law School. The effort to repeal Jim Crow laws is based there. Professor Chin, welcome. Thank you.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: Can I start by asking, what was the catalyst for deciding to investigate if Jim Crow-era laws remained on the books at that time? For
1: years, there's been a number of stories about people who identified segregation provisions in a state constitution, segregation provisions in state codes that were still on the books and tried to get them repealed. In 1967, for example, the U.S. Supreme Court said that it was illegal for the states to prohibit interracial marriage, but it took states, some states, many years to actually take their prohibitions off the books. And I thought that that would be an interesting project to see what we could find that was still on the books with regard to school segregation, and that it would be educational for the students and for the community to point out the pervasiveness of segregation laws I guess one of the real points is that we declared segregation unconstitutional in 1954. Uh, Over time, schools were actually integrated, but I don't think that there was, that there ever has been really a systematic effort to root out the variety of Jim Crow laws, uh, root and branch to identify them, to think about their present effects, and to get rid of them. And so we wanted to take a look at what was still on the books, but partly as an effort to ask the question, in what ways does Jim Crow still uh, echo uh, throughout the ages now?
0: So even though, as you rightly point out, that these laws cannot be enforced, they're unenforceable, they're illegal – Why is it therefore important that they be removed, given that they cannot be enforced? To some extent, they can be enforced.
1: Not the segregation laws themselves, but laws that were associated with segregation. So, for example, uh, some states uh, either closed the public schools in response to Brown v. Board of Education or offered state financing to private schools that uh, educated only whites And we found a law that offered pensions to teachers who worked in these segregated schools. And those laws are still on the books and they're still enforced. So there's still people who are earning money based on service at segregated schools after they were illegal, uh, at least after the public segregated schools were illegal. And so it's not the case that these laws are completely gone. And there are other kinds of laws for example, were race neutral. They weren't about segregation per se on their face, but they permitted segregation. And so, for example, one sort of workaround that states tried to use to get around Brown versus Board of Education uh, was a generation of laws called uh, pupil assignment laws or individual assignment laws. And the law would say, the school board in a district may assign Uh, any student to the school that they believe is appropriate for their uh, situation and educational needs. And you won't be surprised to learn that all the black students were individually assigned to black schools and all the white students were individually assigned to white schools. Uh, And some of these laws are still on the books. And they're enforced. They're not enforced to Uh, openly segregate the way they were in 1956 or 1960, but they're still on the books and they're still operational. And and they certainly have the possibility uh, in some cases for uh, arbitrary discrimination. But you're right. Most of the laws uh, that explicitly authorized school segregation by race were invalidated. They might still be on the books, but they are unenforceable if they are. And why is it important to take them off the books? Well, one reason is that we really just wanted to point out that we had this change with Brown versus Board of Education and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, and, and these were real changes. They were important changes, but it wasn't exactly a disjunctive moment in American history. It wasn't like there's a before and after. There was resistance. desegregation in 1954 and 1964 and 65. And it's still controversial in certain ways that people, some people argue, you know, why did the federal government have to be so heavy handed? Why are they forcing these things? Why is uh, the, the government so deeply involved? Why can't this be a state issue? And the fact that these laws remained on the books i think is is evidence that segregation stopped mainly by court order mainly by injunction by law but it didn't stop because the people in the states agreed oh you know what that was wrong we shouldn't have done that that was a terrible terrible thing we did we now recognize it we're sorry and we're going to do something different going forward It was shoved down their throats, and to some extent, they complied when there was no other option, but it wasn't as though there was a a change in societal attitudes. I mean, there was some, to be sure, but it wasn't as though there was a systematic change in societal attitudes where, for example, the lawmakers said, we have this old system. It was a bad system. We're going to change it. Now, what we need to do is look at every law on the books and make sure that it's not infected with the racism of the past. They didn't do that because they didn't think that was appropriate to do. They didn't want to get rid of the racism. They wanted to comply to the extent that they had to, but there was a real sense that they were the ones being subjected to tyranny. They were the ones whose rights and traditions were being stomped on by an irresponsible and liberty-denying federal government. You know, that was the idea. We wanted to uh, make a statement about the pervasiveness of these laws, uh, which I don't think is fully appreciated, and the persistence of these laws. And we wanted to raise a question. We don't have an answer, but we wanted to raise a question. To what extent are we still living with Jim Crow? in 2006 in 2004 in in 2022 to what extent does this pervasive history shape the way our country exists today
0: your original report that was published in the university of michigan uh, law journal mentioned a number of devious ways in which southern politicians attempted to block school integration you mentioned the pension funding but some School boards actually gifted property and furnishings to private entities. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: This is a country that's supposedly based on law and order, the rule of law. We follow the law, except sometimes people don't follow the law, even even government officials. And so one would have thought that once we have Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, which says the Constitution prohibits school segregation, that states would comply, but they didn't. Some did immediately, and that was that. But other states thought that this was a real destruction of their way of life, and they came up with method after method to try to avoid actually integrating schools. There was something called a freedom of choice plan, where, okay, uh, everybody gets to decide where they want to go to school. And all the whites wanted to go to white schools. One of the things that states did to prevent integration was they would simply give the public school to a newly founded nonprofit organization, or they'd give other public land, public buildings, public funds, uh, they would donate it to a private entity to start a new school. In many cases, all of the teachers. Uh, at the public school, would go work for the new school. And uh, as a private entity in the years before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, in states that didn't have their own uh, state civil rights acts, a private entity was permitted to discriminate. So they could say, this is going to be a whites only school, segregation academies, they were called. And to the extent that a group of private individuals wants to have a school for their children, there's only so much that the government can do about it. But the trick here is that these were supported with government funds, they were supported with state funds, state donations, state resources, and the courts ultimately did say that that was unconstitutional, that this is state support of segregation, and it's not different from, in a legal sense from the state operating the school, themselves. But it took years to uh, reach those conclusions, just like every effort, the individual assignment plans, the freedom of choice plans, the closing the schools entirely a strategy that was employed in some counties, the public funding of private schools. For every legal strategy that segregationists employed, it would take a couple of years to to invalidate it, and so it really delayed, in some states, integration for years and years. And and as late as the late 60s, the Supreme Court was finally in a position of saying, look, integration means integration now, not as soon as you can figure out a, a way to do it that makes sense to you. And so there were people who started school, uh, African-American people uh, and white people, who started school, kindergarten or first grade, after Brown versus Board of Education. But they went through their whole career in segregated schools, K through 12, because there were these delays. There were these massive resistance, is what it was called, to school integration. And the courts did not act so strongly and so clearly that, that that didn't work again some school districts integrated right away the law's the law we're going to integrate that being said integration as you and your listeners will know is not a simple matter because even once we stop uh, segregating schools by law we have neighborhood schools we have a tradition of neighborhood schools and If the residences are segregated, then even if technically the schools are open to whoever's in the neighborhood, if the neighborhood is segregated, then it's going to result in segregated schools, de facto segregated schools. And there was also a a generation of litigation about de facto segregation. And uh, there were states in the North and South, it's not accurate to say that race law, that Jim Crow was exclusively a southern phenomenon plenty of racial regulation in the north and the west uh, as well as in the south but even in states that did not authorize segregation by law there was often segregation by practice Uh, and here i mean formal practice drawing district attendance lines based on the racial composition of neighborhoods and so that is You know, it's not unintentional discrimination, it's not implicit bias, it's intentional discrimination that is no different from a legal or constitutional perspective than if a state legislature passes the law mandating it. It's just less visible. And and that is, I I think, one of the problems in, in grasping the scope and nature and impact of Jim Crow.
0: Yeah, and many of the neighborhoods had ordinances and other racial protections which prevented certain groups of people from moving into those neighborhoods. And as you say, if there is a neighborhood school that was technically integrated, but people of certain racial groups could not move into those neighborhoods, then you had effectively a de facto segregated school, even if that was complying with the laws of school integration. That's
1: right. And there's two ways that that happened. There were ordinances that were passed in some cities that said, if there's a majority white neighborhood or a majority black neighborhood, then only people of that race can move in. Uh, And the Supreme Court held that unconstitutional in 1917. Ironically, the lawyer for the United States who argued that case, Buchanan versus Worley, was the same lawyer, John W. Davis, who argued Brown versus Board of Education for the segregationist side. Uh, So the Supreme Court held these segregation ordinances unconstitutional, but cities passed them anyway. Just because something's unconstitutional doesn't mean you can't put it in the law book and doesn't mean that people won't comply with it. But it was illegal. What the Supreme Court held was legal shortly after Buchanan versus Worley were racially restrictive covenants, which I think is one of the things that you were talking about, where private parties get together and say, in our housing development, we're not going to allow any non-Caucasians to move in. And ultimately, the Supreme Court held those were unenforceable, too, but only after decades and decades of them establishing housing patterns that persists to this day.
0: That's a very good point. So decades after the passage of the Supreme Court decision on Brown v. Board of Education, you still have both the resistance, uh, so efforts to get around integration, but then you have these other factors such as ordinances and covenants that neighborhoods have, which, again, delays the idea of having properly integrated schools. Yes.
1: And another factor is Patterns of government loan financing and public housing financing, which was also segregated for many years. And uh, up until the late 60s, there's a, a new book coming out. I haven't read it yet, but I've ordered it about realtors and the ethics of realtors and their practices. And they would steer blacks to the black neighborhood, Latinos to the Latino neighborhood. Whites to the white neighborhood, Asians to the Asian neighborhood. And their their rules of ethics explicitly said it's unethical to break the traditional pattern uh, of a neighborhood. And the laws in many states, you know, that licensed real estate agents and real estate brokers adopted the ethical rules of the professional associations. And so they would say, you can lose your license, you know, the government regulation would say you can lose your license if you violate the ethical standards of your profession. You know, again, there's this public-private interaction where the National Association of Realtors says we're gonna support segregation, and they're a private organization, so they're not subject to the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, but then the government adopts their rules. And enforces them. And when you take all of these things together, it shows, in my view, that there's a network, a system, a pattern, and there's really not that much room. There's some room, but there's not that much room for individual choice and individual action, you know, if these practices are pervasive.
0: Yeah, I think uh, in that book, The Color of Law, right. uh, the author went at some length to explain the efforts that individuals, he talked about Richmond, California, not too far from where you are in Davis, and how efforts to permit African-Americans to buy homes were thwarted by a combination of the the ordinances, the covenants, and also real estate practice.
1: Sure, and this affected Asians as well. As you know, you mentioned Palo Alto. I've done some research on discrimination against Chinese restaurants. uh, And Palo Alto was a place where the newspapers reported that there was a policy of denying business licenses to Chinese businesses. And it wasn't 100% successful. But this is another example of de facto discrimination where they're trying to achieve this uh, white exclusivity through law. And obviously, there are consequences of that, because whether your parents or grandparents or great-grandparents were able to buy land in Palo Alto or Richmond has a very significant influence on your uh, economic status today. There were plenty of people who are who were paying for college or whatever, you know, whose lives are uh, supported and eased, based on real estate that was bought in the 40s, 50s, 60s or 70s and you know it takes time a lot of time for those kinds of of significant advantages and disadvantages to to work themselves out you know even though now we don't have a federal housing situation for example that discriminates on the basis of of race and the realtors have an ethical rule that prohibits discrimination We weren't starting from a position of equity and fairness uh, when those kinds of things came in 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 the 60s and 70s.
0: In your original paper, looking at 50 years beyond Brown versus Board of Education, a couple of things you talked about that I thought was interesting you examined eight southern states, four of which seem to have repealed all of the laws that had Jim Crow era laws that were on the books. Can you talk about the response you got from present-day Virginia in relation to your approach to them about these older laws?
1: Some people said, why can't you mind your own business? Uh, Why can't you find some things in, in your state to look at? And... You know, I'm one of those people who thinks of us all as Americans and not as a Californian or Virginian first, and perhaps not everybody feels that way. I would think that people would say in 2004 when we did this, thanks. This is not about me. If I'm a member of the Virginia legislature now, I would think that this would be a helpful reminder of of a cleanup even if you don't believe that race has pervasive effects today which is an argument you know it's an empirical question Uh, and not everybody believes that is a bad person but even if you do believe that i think you would say you know wow there's no need to have these laws on the books if they don't have any purpose or effect let's just get rid of them they wouldn't take it personally they'd say This is about other people. This is about the segregationists from the 50s and before who did things that that, uh, I'm not responsible for. But some people did feel like this was criticism of them, which makes me think, do you endorse these views still? Um, and, And I think it might not be that crude, but I think it might be, and this is a problem, it might be that that they aren't quite willing to say that the people who supported segregation, who came up with it and carried it out and defended it in the 50s, were, even on that issue, bad or wrong. They're not quite willing to say that was just a wrong turn, that was just a blunder, and you know, to that extent, uh, they blew it. They can't quite condemn even that aspect of these former uh, leaders of the community, leaders of the state. And I think that's unfortunate. I think it's because, I'm speculating here, but because of the pervasiveness, I think there was a pervasive Jim Crow system, North, South, East, West. I think it has substantial present effects. In any event, I think we can look at the demographic situation uh, on average of African-Americans and white Americans and see differences in terms of educational attainment, in terms of employment, in terms of assets, in terms of income, in terms of uh, incarceration. There are very substantial differences. And I think they're not all about the results of individual choice. It's about the way society was structured for many decades. And I think that there are some folks who are reluctant to think about what it would mean to live in a fair society. I, for example, recognize that the Native American tribes lost something like 98% of their land or more. I recognize that since my university, for example, is on former Indian territory, uh, I personally benefit from the displacement of the Native American tribes I also recognize that the way that that happened, their loss of their land, was not in free and fair consensual transactions exclusively. Some of it was, but a lot of it wasn't. And yet, uh, you know, the logic of that would say, well, they're entitled to a remedy. But that's a big thing. That's a big thing to think about, you know, even for me, who I'm willing to go pretty far down that road. But it's daunting to think about, What would fair treatment of Native American people look like today? Because it would be a big number of dollars or acres or something. It would be uh, a transformation of society. And that's what I think certain white people think. Certainly not all white people. I'm not one who accepts the theory that all white people are racist or all white people don't like people of color. On the other hand, just as every Asian person in America benefits from the displacement of the Indians, there's not much that an individual white person or an individual Asian person can do about it. I can't not take the benefit of the displacement of the Indian tribes. It would be very, I mean, I could, but I'd have to leave the country or something. I mean, how do you do that? How do you not get the benefit of these things that have happened? I I really don't know. And for white people, who find themselves in the position that they're in, even if they don't approve of the way blacks have been treated and, and other people, how do you get out from your position in the system? It's very difficult. If, for example, you want to have a job and the jobs are segregated, you have to take a, a job that is open to white people. If you want to buy a house and and the realtors will only show you houses in a white neighborhood, you're kind of stuck with buying a house in a white neighborhood. Even if that means, as we know, was uh, often the case, the better amenities, the schools, the jobs were located in the white neighborhoods and the negative amenities, the sheet metal factories and toxic waste dumps were located in other neighborhoods. It's very difficult to say psychologically and practically, Uh, but here I'm thinking practically. It's very difficult to say, I don't want to take the benefit of this because I don't approve of it we're stuck in the society that we're stuck in
0: let me go back to uh something earlier when you were talking about virginia it made me think as a historian about the reaction at the end of the u.s civil war that this was the lost cause and that if we deny that it was really about slavery then we can interpret the past slightly differently and it sounds like in some ways the response you got from the officials in virginia were saying yeah, we're not really willing to go to that past and truly analyze it for what it was.
1: I think there's a reluctance uh, on the part of many folks to do that because once you open that can of worms, where does it stop? People want to think of themselves as fair. They want to think of their society as just and legitimate. They don't want to think that a lot of the advantages they have were if we apply principles of objective morality were taken in illegitimate ways during the civil war and before during uh, formal segregation people supported segregation explicitly they said look this is we're the superior race we deserve this it's better for blacks and other non-whites to be subordinated because they're at an earlier stage of development, at least for this country. And those kinds of justifications can't be used anymore. Uh, At least it's very difficult for them to be used anymore. And yet there is still a somewhat similar relationship. Blacks were discriminated against very severely for a long time. It wasn't just that the schools were segregated. It was that in many instances, and we might be able to find some cases where there was a real effort at fairness. But the general rule was that the schools for African-Americans were much worse. Sometimes there's a famous US Supreme Court case where high school was available only for whites. So you couldn't even go to high school in that county if you were black. There were many instances where the school year was shorter famously, a lot of black schools got hand-me-down books. Once the textbook was obsolete, then blacks could use it and the whites would get the new books. And there are consequences of that. I mean, you and I are educators. We have to believe that education changes people or develops potential or something and that there's a difference between somebody being somebody who's had the opportunity for an education and other kinds of things that help a young person to develop and and somebody who hasn't and those are not things that when somebody's 25 or 35 are easy to change if they haven't for example had the opportunity to learn how to read some of these disadvantages are long lasting and some of them at least demographically we see uh, have intergenerational effects. I am not one who thinks that the evidence supports any sort of biological difference in brains or intelligence or potential, but certainly having parents who know how to navigate the educational and employment system is helpful to children. And and parents who have a, a certain level of resources is helpful to children. I saw a, a chart In the New York Times, I guess I should read the underlying study to to see if it's legitimate, but for the moment, I'll assume that it's true. And it showed that the college graduation rate was linear, upward, uh, and positively correlated with income, and it it never flattened out. The 99th percentile of income had a higher graduation rate than the 98th, and the 98th had a higher graduation rate than the 97th. That surprised me. You know, you'd know. you think that at some point, uh, affluent is affluent. And, and so what that means is, and, and again, it's not that individuals have no control over their lives. And, and certainly, even if somebody does not have every advantage or any advantage, there are some who make the most out of their situation and achieve great things. But it's harder. It's harder. And the statistics say, having certain kinds of support it makes it more likely that certain kinds of outcomes will be achieved and you know that when we sort of slowly and grudgingly moved away from segregation uh, starting really in the in the 1940s because there were brown versus board of education wasn't the first case there were higher education cases even in the US Supreme Court Uh, starting in the 30s, and in state desegregation cases. So there was a serious questioning of the idea long before Brown versus Board of Education. The full impact of that takes a long time to flow through the system.
0: That was UC Davis law professor Gabriel Jack Chin talking about the lingering effects of Jim Crow laws. This is Resilient History.